the word of God from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. All right, well, good morning, church family. If you're new or you snuck in a little bit late, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we love, as our main bread and butter, just going through books of the Bible. Uh, this year, we finished up the book of Leviticus. We went through the short little book of Jude. Another thing that we love to do is, if not going through a whole book of the Bible, we love going through a big section or, a, or kind of a chunk of a book. And so in January, we're going to actually dive in and spend about three months going through the parables of Jesus. So selections from the various gospels, all these stories that Jesus himself told that are so, um, you know, even worked their way into the public Vernacular, People will say, oh, a good Samaritan, and maybe not even realize that that comes from Jesus himself. Um, but at Christmas time, what we like to do is ruin Christmas carols for you. So uh, Pastor John and myself over the last few weeks have been looking at some well-known Christmas carols and holding them up to the teaching of the Bible and just asking, hey, is what this song teaches in line with what the Bible teaches? And uh, this song... By the way, things have been just getting tenser and tenser. Uh, in between services, I was cornered by a very sweet older lady who just got right in my grill and said, which song you ruined today, Pastor Aaron? I, I said, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know. And I ran, I ran away from the situation. <clears throat> there's fights in the parking lot, there's weeping. It's getting really ugly. But um, no, the song for today is actually, on one survey that I saw, was actually the second most popular Christmas carol in England. And we know those people are... Ooh, a little sideways. So, uh, no, the song that we're going to pick on today is Away in a Manger. And Away in a Manger is, I know, I'm going to get in trouble here. Listen, Away in a Manger, uh, it used to be attributed to Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. But as historians have dug in, they have found little to zero evidence to corroborate that. And the best that some historians are able to put together is they think that it was actually written by some Americans in the 1800s around the 300th anniversary of when Martin Luther kind of kicked off the Protestant Reformation. So it's an American song in honor of Martin Luther. And um, actually, I do want to say there's just a lot that this song gets right. You know, it talks about not having a crib for a bed, the poverty of Jesus, that he not only left heaven's glories, but came into a humble earthly existence. Or when it talks about, like this song is all about children, right? Bless all the dear children. How many of you know Jesus loves children? How many of you know Jesus loves children? He loves children. So that song gets that very right. And, and, and there's a line where it says, look down on us from the sky, but then it also says, stay by my cradle till morning is nice. So the song gets the transcendence and the imminence of Christ Jesus, right? That's good. Maybe accidentally, but it got it. Good job. And there's also a line that says, uh, fit us for heaven to live with thee there. So it gets the sanctifying work of Jesus in our life, changing us, transforming us day by day so that we can become more like Jesus and we'll be able to spend eternity with them. Now, I have just 
one quibble, and actually, I take it back. I have three quibbles with this song. The first two are bonus. They're free. They don't count. The, the line says, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. And I was doing a little bit of reading and research this week, and I discovered that the word crib is an old Anglo-Saxon word that means manger. It's just a feeding box. So the song says, away in a feeding box, no feeding box for a bed. And I'm like, somebody should have done their etymological research before writing this song. <laughs> Look, in the ancient world, you only have so many things. It's not like today, you parents, you got, you got your playpen, you got your pack and play, you got your bassinet, you got your crib. They're like, we have a box. We can put food in it or we can put our child in it. That's all we've got. So, uh, all right, that's a free one. I just had to get that off my chest. There is a little sense in which um, this song is kind of moralizing, right? It's all to and about children and, you know, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. So you good little children, you better, you better keep your crying to yourself and be good little children like Jesus was. And oh my goodness, look, we have kids in here and they squawk and they squeal and it's wonderful because it means there's precious life and Jesus loved children again. But, but here is the line. Here's the actual line that I want to quibble with the song today and ruin away in a manger for you. It is the line that says, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, uh, two of the gals up here leading us in music today, both Chrissy and, and Naomi, both have young little ones. And as we were talking about it this week, prepping, they're like, that is such a silly line. Uh, because have, how many of you have ever met um, a baby, a, hum, a human baby? Any of you ever met a human baby? I've raised four human babies. And actually, through foster care, families down, I've had many human babies in our home. And like, I guess there have been a few times where one of them like woke up from a nap and didn't cry, but that was way more the exception than the rule, right? Human babies cry. And Jesus was a human baby. And so many have seen in this line a potential diminishment of the humanity, the full humanity of Jesus. And so that's what I want to explore today. It's Advent, it's the season of the incarnation, and, and what does it mean that God is, that Jesus is, yes, fully God, but he's also fully man. See, when Jesus showed up on the scene, think about just the gospel stories. He shows up on the scene, and he's born, and he's raised, he lives a normal human life. He showed up as a human baby. He showed up as a human child. He didn't show up as an angel, you know, despite some of the Renaissance paintings where he's like glowing like a nuclear reactor. He didn't show up as a different animal. He didn't show up as a sheep or anything. He didn't show up as an alien. He showed up as a human being. And so everyone kind of, you know, hey, this is Jesus. He's just a guy. In fact, you can see in the Gospels, we're like, isn't that just Jesus, like the guy from Nazareth? Isn't that the son of Mary and that carpenter guy, Joe? Joseph, and he's just a guy. But then Jesus begins teaching, and some of the things he's teaching starts to raise some eyebrows. And there's a scene in John chapter 10 where the religious leaders pick up rocks to throw at him and kill him. And Jesus says, he goes, man, I've done a lot of really good works. Which one am I in trouble for that you're going to kill me now? And they go, it's not for your good works, Jesus. It's because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. After his crucifixion on that, on that Friday, and the Roman centurion that was standing there, there was, Matthew records that there was a great earthquake and there was a great darkness, like an eclipse. There were these kind of wonders in the skies and in nature. And, and the Roman centurion looked up after Jesus died and he looked up and he goes, truly, this man was the what? Son of God. So during his earthly life and ministry, there's this kind of just obvious layer of he's a human being, but there was this, he, he's God. 
How is he God? And the New Testament is written to address those questions. And actually, even beyond the New Testament, followers of Jesus are wrestling with this question. How, how could this guy who's just a guy, just a man, a guy from Nazareth, how could he truly be God as well? And it leads to all sorts of questions and writings and conversations and counsels. And, and that's what I want us to explore today. And so my big idea for today is our roadmap. My big idea is this. Jesus is the eternal son. He is fully God and man. And he's the man of sorrows. The eternal son, fully God and man, but then we're going to land the plane all the way back where we started on the little Lord Jesus. Yes, crying he makes. So that's my big idea, and it's my three points. How's that for sermon prep efficiency? Here we go. Let's talk about the eternal son for a moment, because when Jesus showed up on the scene, he was born in a specific time, in a specific place, born in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David. And, 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 and so that's obviously when Jesus, the human being, came into existence. But the Bible teaches us that the son of God existed before Jesus was born. He's pre-existent. John 1, famous verse from the opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. And a little bit later in that chapter, he's going to say the word and the son. He's going to use those terms interchangeably. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word what? Was God. He was with God in the beginning. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem around the year, maybe around the year zero, probably more like 4 BC because the people that first calculated it and set our calendars were off by a little bit, but we don't hold it against them. It's fine. Uh, you're all four years younger than you think you are. We'll just say that. Um, so Jesus of Nazareth was born at a specific place in time, but the eternal word, the eternal son was preexistent. He has always existed with God. So while Jesus was born, the eternal son was never born. He always existed, Okay. Not only has he preexisted, he is eternally the Son. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, and he's praying in front of his disciples, and he prays, Father, I really want these people that you've given to me, I want them to be with me where I am, so that they can see my glory, which you gave me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the earth. So Jesus is saying, you're my Father, and you loved me like a father loves a son before there ever was a universe. Now, Jesus in his eternal sonship, this is about a relationship of love. This is not about Jesus being less important or, or, or subservient to. Sometimes people take the eternal sonship idea of the Godhead and make it be like, well, God the Father is somehow more powerful than God the Son. No, because the Bible also teaches the equal divinity of the Son. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side has revealed him. So the Son is not like a, a less powerful or a less important God or a part of God or anything like that. The Son is himself fully God. And he is with God. And you're like, how is he God and with God? That's the Trinity. That's a different sermon. We'll get into that some other time, okay? Paul writes that he's the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1 or in Philippians 2 as we read in our assurance that he existed in the very form of God. The eternal son, before Jesus was born, 
the eternal son has always existed in a father-son relationship with the father, but of full, equal divinity. Now, after the close of the writings of the New Testament, people are starting to wrestle with that. How is it that, how is it that this guy, Jesus, could be, could be God? And in the year 318, right around the year 318, so a few centuries after Jesus' earthly life and ministry, there's a guy named Arius who started trying to speculate about how it could be that, that this Jesus is God. And he came up with the idea that Jesus, he's like a lowercase g God. Uh, if, you were, if we were Greek mythology, we'd say like a demigod. He's like a created being. He's really important. He's, he's more important than us. He's more divine than us but he's somehow of lesser divinity. Bruce Shelley is a biblical scholar, and he writes this. He says, to Arius, when Christians called Christ God, well, he thought they didn't mean that he was deity, except like in an approximate sense. He was a lesser being or a half-god, not the eternal and changeless creator. He was a created being, the first created being and the greatest, but, you know, nevertheless himself created. So that's what Arius was saying and Arius was saying this stuff in the year 318. And they didn't have email back then. And they didn't have social media back then. So it took about seven years for them to get a meeting together. There are some of you at your work, it's like, it feels like it takes me seven years to get a meeting scheduled and on the calendar. But this one really took seven years. So in the year 325 AD, in the summer, a big council was convened in a city called Nicaea. And it's the Council of Nicaea. And Arius was there, and Athanasius was there, and all of these bishops and all these people came from all around the world was there. And, and kids, do you know who else was there? Santa Claus. <laughs> Not joking, the actual St. Nicholas, a bishop from a town called Myrna, he was there. And Myrna, the bishop of Myrna, St. Nicholas, the, the, the legend goes, we don't know this like for certain, but the legend goes that St. Nick... Jolly old Saint Nick was so upset by the bad false teaching of Arius that at one point he went up and just popped him right in the face. Now, listen. We don't know for certain that jolly old Saint Nicholas punched Arius. But I believe in Santa Claus, okay? I choose to believe, all right? But they get this big council together and they're saying, how is it? Like, is Jesus like fully God? Is he lesser than God? And they came up with this statement called the Nicene Creed. And it reads as follows. In fact, we'll put it up on the screen. Why don't you read it out loud with me? Let's recite the Nicene Creed together today. Let's say this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. It's like this guy Jesus who showed up, he really is fully 100% God. And everyone left the council, and Arius put a bag of peas on his eye, and, and and they all went on their merry way, and St. Nicholas went out and got himself some reindeer. It's not true, but anyways. Which leads me to the second point. So they, they all leave, and they all go on. And now people are, okay, he really fully, truly is God. So then they start asking a question, well, how is it that he could be, like, fully God, 
but also like fully a man. Like, how does that work? How do the, how does the, you know, the parts and things kind of fit together in who this person Jesus was? And they, they would look to passages like the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which gets us closer to our scripture reading. We're not quite there yet. Hebrews chapter one, at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. And the Greek word there is hypostasis. It's like the the reality that's underneath everything. The exact imprint, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what is the author of Hebrews saying there? Jesus is exactly like God. Exact. Whatever God is like, Jesus is exactly like that. But you go one chapter later, and he's talking about us, the, the fallenness, the, the sinful human beings. He says, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So that through uh, his death, he might destroy the one who's holding the power of death. Skip ahead to verse 17. He says, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in, say it with me, every way. Every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. So in chapter one, the author of Hebrews goes, whatever God is like, he is exactly like God. But then in chapter two, the author of Hebrews goes, whatever a human being is like, he is exactly like that. He is like 100% God and 100% man. You're like, but that's 200% person. You're like, yeah. So people started wrestling with it about the next hundred years after the Council of Nicaea. People start writing things and kind of asking some questions. So there's a guy named Apollinaris. Apollinaris. That's a good name for a dog. Apollinaris! Like you're yelling that out the front door. Um, Apollinaris, his, his solution was, okay, so there's this like human being, but then God shows up and like the divine nature just kind of obliterates the human nature. Just kind of takes over. So now it's like God in like a human body shell sort of a thing. Any of you guys remember the movie from the 90s, uh, Men in Black? It's your Edgar suit. It's like he's in an Edgar suit. It's kind of like that, right? It's like, he looks like a human being, but inside it's really God. Well, people start wrestling with it. They go, hold on a second then. Um, If he's like a human body then that does not mean he is like us in every way because we as humans, we have a mind and we have a will and we have rationality and we have, that, that does not like us. And so does that mean if he died and rose again, he can only save our bodies and not our souls as well? And so people are like, I don't think that one works. Then a guy named Nestorius comes along. Nestorius. Sounds like a bad guy, doesn't he? Nestorius came along and said, well, maybe it was more like there's God and a human inside the same body and they just kind of like flip the switch as needed. So it's like, sometimes he's God, sometimes he's man. Sometimes he's God, sometimes he's man. Just kind of switching the flip, you know, flipping the switch back and forth, back and forth. Well, then that raises the question, which one of them died on the cross for us? And if it's, if it's just the human when he died on the cross, well, how does that repay an eternal debt that we owe to an eternal God? That raises a lot of questions. Nestorius, by the way, just for the record, in case he hears this on the podcast, um, he claims he was misunderstood. He was denounced at the council of Chalcedon. He's like, that is not what I said, but poor communication. Again, they didn't have email. I don't know. Benefit of the doubt. Then a guy named Eutychus comes along and he goes, no, 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 no. You guys got it all wrong. It's like we take a cup full of God and we take a cup full of mankind and we just mix them together. You know, like when you're a kid and you'd go to Taco Bell and you're like, 
I want Dr. Pepper, but I also want orange soda. And then you're like, I'll just mix the two of them together. And it's like, well, now it's neither, and it's nasty. And that's kind of what Eutychus is saying. It's like, well, how does that work? It's no longer human or divine. It's some new weird thing you just came up with. Time for another council! Yeah! 451, the fall, they gather together in the city of Chalcedon. And they got all these bishops and all these pastors and all these religious leaders and everyone together and these scholars. And they said, we got to figure this whole God-man thing out. By the way, I know some of you right now are like, I just wanted to sing away in a manger. Well, tough. You're getting the Chalcedonian Creed today. So sit up straight and you're going to like it, okay? They get together, they wrestle, they're saying, how does this work? And, and, and we really like the Nicene Creed. In fact, they, they start their, their creed with, we really like the Nicene Creed. Go look it up. That's what they say. We really like it. We've just got a few extra things we want to say to clarify the nature of Jesus' humanity and deity. And here is what they came up with. We then, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one consent, we all agree, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, but also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man, to be acknowledged in two natures. They're not confused. They're not changeable. They're not mixed together like Eutychus said. They're not switchable like Nestorius said. They're not separable, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinctions of natures being by no means taken away from the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person's and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. All right. Now, you can have a sip of your coffee now if you need to wake back up after that, all right? Some dense theology, is it not? Sometimes when I'm teaching the Bible or I'm meeting with somebody or even like my kids, we're reading through the Bible and there's certain stories in the Bible, especially the Gospels, what Jesus, when we're reading about Jesus, and Jesus will do something like heal someone. And I've had people say to me like, well, is that him acting in his divinity or is that him acting in his humanity? And if Chalcedon is right, the answer to that question is yes. Now, there are certainly some moments in Jesus' earthly life and ministry that show off his divinity more, right? Think about um, the transfiguration when he's blinding light and glory and, and Moses and Elijah show up. That highlights his divinity, right? But in that moment, he is still fully God and man, both. Or there's other scenes that highlight maybe his humanity. I always love the story of Jesus going to sleep in the back of the boat, because it said they had one cushion and he took it. And I think that's awesome, right? He's tired, he's been teaching in his, in his humanity, that is Jesus, it kind of highlights his humanity, right? But in that moment, he is still fully God as well. And the two natures are not in competition with each other. Jesus shows us what it would look like for a human nature and a human will to be perfectly united with the divine will which is actually in a sense, and not, not that we are Jesus, the incarnation, but there, there is a sense in which God wants our wills to be blended with his perfectly in perfect harmony and perfect unity. That's what the doctrine of union with Christ points us towards. Now, listen, I know there's, there's a valid objection that some people may come along and say, this is all really potentially hair-splitting sort of theology. All this like 
two natures, one person, all this kind of stuff. In fact, we, we have a fancy theological term for it. We call it the hypostatic union, that there is one person with two natures. The hypostatic union. And people might say, this is all a little bit too thick. It's a little bit too dense. What's the big deal? Why do we need to care about something like this? And on the one hand, I would say, yes, I think there is a valid point to say, how could we ever understand something as miraculous as the incarnation of God himself? Do we think we could have it all sorted out? Do we think we can have it all figured out? Do you think the, the mystery of godliness is great? The apostle Paul writes, though he was God, he came into humanity and the, came into the earth as a form of a man. So obviously the mystery is there. But the, the Chalcedonian creed is this attempt for people to say the Bible's kind of pulling us in two different directions. How do we, how do we hold these things in tension? There's a really helpful short little book called um, Knowing the Creeds and Councils. It's by a guy named Justin Holcomb, who I had as a, both a teacher and as a coworker at, at different points, which is kind of interesting. I dropped my pen down inside of my shirt. How am I supposed to take notes? <laughs> Hold on. I've become one with the pen. Sorry. I'll fix that for the five o'clock service. Um, Justin Holcomb, he writes this about Chalcedon. He says, it might be helpful to think of Chalcedon as a way to correct extremes in our thinking. Because we can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus is spiritual and far removed from us, it can be comforting to remember that Jesus is really human. However, against the tendency to think of Jesus as merely human or just a wise man or a spiritual leader, Chalcedon brings to our attention those passages that show his eternal power and glory. The conclusion of the council was that as paradoxical as a God-man might seem, it was important to remember that both portraits show us the same person. One Jesus fully God, and fully man. Which brings me back to where we started, all the way back with that line in a way in a manger, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. So Jesus was and is the eternal son. He is now forevermore the God-man. But he was also the man of sorrows. Centuries before Jesus, the Messiah, was born. Prophets began to speak of a day when this king would show up. All the brokenness in humanity, everything that's messed up, a king is going to show up and he's going to set things right. And there's all these portraits in the prophets of the conquering king, the victorious Messiah, the powerful one. But, and people loved those verses, they loved those passages. But a lot of people missed, particularly in Isaiah, but other places, that this king who was going to come was not just going to be a victorious king, he was also going to be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 says, when the Messiah shows up, you should look for a man of sorrows, someone who is acquainted with grief. Isaiah says when the Messiah shows up, he's going to truly understand humanity's brokenness. He's going to truly understand the griefs and the sorrows that we carry. And Chalcedon would say, yeah, because he's a real human being. 
The Messiah will not just be a conquering king, but he will be one who enters into all of the brokenness that humanity has to offer. Think about this with me. Just take a moment and and kind of imagine and remember some of the stories of Jesus' life. And, And I'll just say it this way. At every stage of life, at every stage of his earthly existence, Jesus knew sorrows. The birth story of Jesus. When Jesus was born, the the Magi show up from the east and they they innocently enough go to Herod's palace and say, hey, we heard there's a new king that's going to be born and we're here to find him. And that sends the maniacal, crazy Herod on a a rage in which he orders the execution of all of the, the babies under the age of two, the baby boys. And so what do Mary and Joseph have to do? They have to pack up their their young little infant child, Jesus, and flee to Egypt to live as refugees, traveling in the ancient world. Traveling's hard enough now. Imagine traveling in the ancient world with the threat of death hanging over your baby. Right out of the gate, Jesus knew sorrow. We don't know how long exactly they stayed in Egypt. Maybe some of the best guess is around two years. So they moved back to the hometown of Nazareth where, where Joseph is from. But you know what happens in Jesus' childhood? In his young adulthood, whispers and rumors about that illegitimate son. They knew there was something, they knew there was something funny about the birth of Jesus. They knew that the word got out that, that Mary was pregnant before Joseph and Mary were, were officially wed. In the Gospel of John, uh, I think in chapter 8, there's a story where some of the religious leaders are talking to Jesus. He's teaching about his father, my father this, my father that. And the religious leaders come up and they, they kind of go, well, at least we know who our father is. Jesus, the illegitimate, scorned son of Nazareth with whispers and rumors. You know, how, you know how nasty people can be. And then Jesus starts teaching. And he starts preaching. And he starts saying, the kingdom of God has come near. And, and the, the first people that show up are these religious leaders who are like, who is this guy? We don't like him. And the very religious leaders that should have anticipated the coming of the Messiah, the very religious leaders that should have heralded him were now his opposition and saying he's come from the devil and he's doing his work by the power of Satan. And and then and then crowds would come and they just wanted the, the goodies. They just wanted the bread. They just wanted the miracles. They didn't want to actually lay down their lives to follow him. Even his own brothers, Jude, whose letter we just studied, came up to him at one point and said, we think you've lost your mind, Jesus. Come home with us. His disciples, the 12 people that he's pouring into the most, they just don't get it. The, the Gospels are pretty unflinchingly honest about the denseness at times of the disciples, the cowardice of the disciples. And on the night of the celebration of Passover, one of the most solemn days in the Jewish calendar, one of these 12 leaves goes and gets the Roman authorities and comes back and says, hi, Jesus, and gives him a kiss. And the soldiers take him into custody. He's mocked. He's lied about. He goes through a mock trial where people said all sorts of falsehoods about him. They took him outside. They scourged him with the Roman cat of nine tails just ripping up the flesh on his back. They put a purple robe on him and they took a a crown made out of sharp 
pokey thorns and drove it into his scalp and said, ha, there's the king of the Jewish people. They made him carry his own cross, walk up a hill outside of the city. They stripped him naked. They nailed his hands and feet to a wooden crossbeam. And they lifted him up. And people walked by and they mocked and they spit on him. Every single stage of his earthly life, from infancy all the way up through that moment on Golgotha, the hill of the skull, Jesus knew sorrow. That's what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 5, the scripture reading. He said, During his earthly life, Jesus offered up prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. If Jesus in his adult life, sorry, away in a manger, but if Jesus during his adult life was known for his loud cries and tears, then yes, he cried as a baby. And he cried out to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, for those who repent and trust in him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I love that the author of Hebrews says he was the son. Here it is again. He was the son, not just a man from Nazareth, but the eternal son of God. But in his humanity, he went through hardship in order to be trained in order to identify with us, to be like us so that he could serve as an actual merciful high priest who can come alongside us and say, yeah, I understand what it's like. And because Jesus cried out to the one who was able to save him from death, God did not leave him in that place of death. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that tomb is empty. And I know it's not Easter, but Christmas and Easter are inextricably tied together. He was born so that he could die, so that he could rise. And after appearing to his disciples, he ascended into heaven where he, right now, the God-man, he is still fully God and fully man at the right hand of the Father on high where he is ruling and reigning over all things and he is a merciful and faithful high priest who makes intercession for us and one day he will return. And one day it's going to be so good that the Apostle Paul says, look, it's going to be so good. There's such an eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us that the, the, the hardships we go through right now, the tears we cry right now are going to seem like light, quick, short little afflictions. There is great joy to be had in knowing that Jesus is the man of sorrows. Because how many of you know Life has some hard things in it. Um, Quick show of hands. How many of you could say in recent weeks or months you've faced some difficult or painful things? Anybody? Okay. One day, the return of Jesus. It's going to be really great. But right now while we wait, I want to wrap up with this thought. 
that if you are sad, Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest, understands better than anyone else ever could. Better than the closest friend, better than the best family member, better than the the most skilled therapist, better than the nicest pastor. It's not me. (laughs) Better than any of them. Before I invite the musicians to come up and before we are led through communion by Pastor John, maybe I'm just going to invite you for a second. Um, you know, the, I was listening to the radio the other day and there was a commercial and it was for like um, one of these kind of like online counseling centers and the, the commercial said something to the effect of, you know, the holidays, you know, for many it's this time of great joy, but for others it's a time of real sadness. And it just kind of got me thinking, you know, There's sadness for a lot of people, especially this time of the year. And how much do we paper over it with Christmas cheer and candy canes and all that? So if you're willing, you're comfortable, I invite you to close your eyes. You don't have to, but if you want to. Take a couple deep breaths. And rather than running away from our sadness, let's investigate it. So what are you sad about right now? What brings your heart sorrow? Is there sinfulness? Is there behaviors that you just wish you could stop? Thought patterns, actions, things that you know are hurtful to people in your life that you love? Is it mistakes and failures? Hopes? things that you were really working hard for and just, just didn't turn out the way you thought. I know there's people in this room dealing with very broken relationships. People that you've just tried to love and care for and, and that relationship is just off. That mistake you made at work and you lost the job or you were let go physical pain that you're dealing with, the effects of aging, the effects of living in a fallen body in a broken world. Why are you sad today? Jesus approaches you with tears in his eyes with nail-scarred hands to reach out to you in that sadness, to offer you his comfort, to offer you his strength to continue to go on. And actually, paradoxically, Jesus comes to you in those sorrows and in those pains to actually use them to make you more like him and to bring you closer to your heavenly Father. What are you using to cover over your sadness? Just a lot of TV? Drinking too much? Eating too much? Shallow Christmas cheer? The man of sorrows invites you to draw near to him. Let him be your comfort.
A hypostatic union is not some dry theological concept. It's Jesus in his full humanity understands and cares. But Jesus in his full divinity actually has the power to do something about it. And one day we're going to see him face to face and all will be well. And until that day, we experience his comfort. We bring our sadnesses to him. We sing, we read the Bible, we eat the bread and we drink the cup to receive his nourishment for the road ahead. I'll invite the musicians to come join me. Pastor John, come lead us in communion. Let's just pray together. Lord, you alone know our sorrows. You alone get it because you've walked through everything that we've walked through and more. And Lord, you invite us to bring our sorrows to you. And I pray now as we prepare to eat and drink at the Lord's table that you would comfort us in our afflictions We would experience your joy even in the midst of sorrows and that you would give us strength to endure until that day that we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.